You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. This afternoon in the sermon, we're considering the truth of God's Word as it's been summarized and confessed in Lord's Day 19. In connection with that, we have three readings, Matthew 25, Ephesians 1, and James 5. First, we turn to Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth. I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. We also turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of His mighty strength, which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church." which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. And finally, also some verses from James chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields 
are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. May God bless the reading of his word for us. So now turn to our Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 19. Why is it added and sits at the right hand of God? Christ ascended into heaven to manifest Himself there as head of His church, through whom the Father governs all things. How does the glory of Christ, our head, benefit us? First, by His Holy Spirit, He pours out heavenly gifts upon us, His members. Second, by His power, He defends and preserves us against all enemies. What comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. In all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but he will take me and all His chosen ones to Himself, into heavenly joy and glory. Beloved congregation of Lord Jesus, with the Apostles' Creed, we confess that 2,000 years ago, a man sat down. And we confess that He still sits. Only God the Father knows how long He will continue to sit. Now, many of us have jobs where we sit down all or most of the time. But there was a time when a person sitting down generally wasn't working. You'd sit down when the job was done. It was certainly that way in ancient Israel. In ancient Israel, in the tabernacle, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once per year with the sacrifice. It was on the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur. And on that day, he would do his work in the Holy of Holies, quickly as he could, but he would never sit down. In fact, there was no place for him to sit down, even if he wanted to. The work was never done. Atonement had to be made continually. But now, now we have a better high priest 
who has gone into the heavenly holy of holies. Having ascended into heaven, Christ has sat down. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty because His work of atonement is done. The work the Father gave Him to do here on earth, He finished it all. And so now, He sits at God's right hand. But that doesn't mean that He's finished everything He's been given to do. In fact, just like many of us work at our jobs sitting down, so Christ is also continuing to work, even as He sits. He's not someone who sits and does nothing. At God's right hand, He holds a position of authority. You'll remember what He said at the end of Matthew 28. Before He went up into heaven, He said that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to Him. Being at God's right hand, He rules. He is and He will be God's number one. His right-hand man. The one whom God has trusted to reign over everything. Jesus Christ is and will be number one. That's our theme this afternoon as we consider what we confess about Christ our Savior in Lord's Day 19. Let's begin by considering what God has revealed to us in the the passage we read from Ephesians 1. Especially interested there in verses 20 to 23. One of the, the striking things about the first chapter of this letter is that Paul is just so absorbed, so wrapped up in glorifying God. He praises God at the very beginning for all His blessings in Jesus Christ. And when it comes to the Ephesian believers, he can't stop thanking God for them and praying for them. He prays, among other things, that they would know God better. That they would know the hope to which they've been called. That they would know the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints that they would know God's power and the working of His mighty strength. In all this, this prayer, you can see that Paul cares very deeply about the sheep in Ephesus. That's why he prays in this way. He prays that they would know God's power, His incomparably great power for us who believe. And where was that power most vividly displayed? Tell us, Paul. Well, he says, it was when God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. God was exalted, Christ was exalted by God over everyone and everything. God has appointed Jesus Christ as number one. Then in verse 22, we read that God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. Having been seated at God's right hand, Christ is head over everything. And we know that that includes the church. In fact, Colossians 1.18 is a sort of parallel passage, and Paul says there that Christ is the head of the body, the church. Ephesians 1.22 tells us that He is head over everything for the church. And so, we could say, Christ is also head over the church for the church. 
And in that you can see that His power is not a raw power for the sake of power. His power, His rule and dominion exist for those whom He rules. His rule benefits us. Now let's just pause here for a moment. Consider that. Don't take this for granted. The king of the universe sits at God's right hand and rules over everything for the church. For you. Wow. Who are we to deserve such a a privilege and such a blessing? And and we see that in the light of what His Word says about our fallen condition. That's a humbling thought. Just as humbling as considering why the Son of God Himself would suffer and die for us rebels and ingrates. We're so unworthy. But Christ has done it. And He didn't stop at the cross. He didn't stop at the empty tomb. He went on to heaven to rule the church in all things for those He has redeemed. Now come on. Doesn't that stir up praise and adoration in your hearts? Jesus Christ is number one for you. Why is that? Because He loves you. And most importantly, so that you would praise God and enjoy Him forever. Beautiful Savior, Lord of the nations, Son of God and Son of Man, glory and honor, praise, adoration, now and forevermore be Thine. Well, The Catechism draws this out more when it lays out the way in which the glory of Christ our head at God's right hand benefits us. We confess there there are at least two benefits. The first is what the Holy Spirit of Christ our Savior does among us. He pours out heavenly gifts upon the members of Christ. Now we're going to deal with this in more depth when we get to the Lord's Days 20 and 21. So I'm going to be brief on this benefit. The Catechism here is paraphrasing Ephesians 4. 7 to 12. In Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul quotes Psalm 68, and he applies those words that are there to Christ. When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. It came from Psalm 68. And some of those gifts Paul goes on to describe in Ephesians 4. He speaks about apostolic gifts, prophetic gifts, the gifts of being an evangelist and pastors and so on. And some of those gifts are described elsewhere in the New Testament. The important thing to note for us right now, here this afternoon, is that those gifts are there. As a ruler, as the head of His church, Christ is wealthy. He has so many riches. And the good news is that He doesn't keep those riches for Himself. And in this way, Christ is very much unlike most earthly monarchs. Take our queen, for instance. We need to pick on her. I'm not saying that this is bad or anything, but you know, our queen is said to, to hold 
personal investments of several billion dollars. She owns jewels worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Our queen has over 310 residences, including five castles. She doesn't share that wealth, all that wealth with us poor plebes. For one thing, she's not obligated to do that. You can't expect her to do that. It wouldn't be practical. Earthly monarchs don't do that sort of thing. It sets a bad precedent. But Christ is so completely different. He's got all that wealth. And He doesn't keep it for Himself. No, He shares it. He's very generous with His gifts. And so we are so rich with this King. And not only are we rich, receiving all these wonderful gifts from His hand, we're also safe. We confess that with His power, He defends and preserves us against all enemies. You've heard it before. I'll say it again. He's a ruler with a hand of power and a heart of love. He has authority and dominion, might to do whatever He wants. And He uses that power for the good of those whom He's bought back from the sinful way of life. We're safe with Him. You know what this comes down to? This is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. We find that doctrine explained most fully in the last chapter of the Canons of Dort. In Article 8 of Chapter 5 of the Canons, we confess that it is the grace of the triune God that preserves the elect. And about what the Son of God does, we believe that, here's a quote, the merit, intercession, and preservation of Christ cannot be nullified. Listen to the beautiful words of our Lord Jesus Himself in John 10.28. These are good words to memorize. John 10.28 I give them, and there He's speaking about the sheep, the elect, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of My hand. The preservation and protection of Christ cannot be nullified. It cannot be brought to nothing. It cannot be minimized, mitigated in any way. What a savior. You know, we have, we, we have many enemies. We've got the unholy trinity, the devil, the world, and our own flesh. They don't stop attacking us. And they're powerful. First Peter 5 tells us that the devil is like a roaring lion looking for someone to Devour. Literally, it says someone to drink up. It's to drink your blood. The world woos us with its, with its distractions, with its promises of, of happiness. The remnants of our old nature beckon us every day to, to come back. This is where the going is good. Rebelling against God. Forget about following Him. 
These enemies are not to be underestimated. But at the same time, we must never, ever underestimate the power of Christ our King and our Defender. With all those enemies facing us, we have one stronger than all of them put together. And so when we are faced with those enemies, you will be in this coming week and all the weeks to follow for the rest of your life. We don't look to our, ourselves and our own strength. Instead, what do we do? We fix our eyes on Jesus, our defender and preserver. What does that mean? Well, it means that we cry to Him. We call out to Him for mercy and for help in our hour of need. We call out to Him because He has promised to hear and to help. Christ is the head of the church. And this fills us with praise and it brings wonderful benefits. And confessing this, it also leads our, our lives in a certain direction. We just mentioned one of them. We look to Christ in our struggles and in our afflictions. We also esteem Him and His Word for our lives every day. Think about it, right? If Christ is the head of the church and we are members of His church, then Christ's Word rules supreme for us. And we live in a time where people don't like having authority over them. We're called to be counter-cultural. That means believers set aside their own wills and they humble themselves before the Word of God. If the Word says that they're to live their lives in a certain way, then relying on God's help, they do that. No questions asked. No grumbling. No complaining. He said it in John 14, verse 15, If you love Me, you will obey what I command. Christ is King. And we follow what He says because we know that He is the King. And we love our King. And we're filled with thankfulness to our King. He's number one. And then it naturally follows that His Word is number one for our lives. His authority not only extends to His reign over the church and indeed over all things, it also means that He is the appointed judge of all people. We confess that the Christ sitting at the right hand of God is going to come to judge the living and the dead. Now the Catechism asked a strange question. This is one of the strangest questions in the Catechism. What comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? That's the first time that word comfort has appeared in the Catechism since Lord's Day 1, by the way. And normally, we, we don't associate that word comfort with judgment. Now hopefully it never happens to any of us, but if you're ever brought to a court and, and charged with a crime... I can tell you that comfort is not going to be one of the words going through your mind. So here too, we would not dream of comfort in connection with standing before the judge of heaven and earth. Unless, 
unless we knew the verdict ahead of time. Unless the verdict had already been decided and announced. And for us who believe, it has. Romans 8 verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As the Catechism puts it, He has removed all the curse from me. From you. That means we're right with God. And so, on the day of the Lord, we have nothing to fear. In fact, instead of fear, we can have comfort. We don't know when Christ will return as judge. Matthew 24:36, he said that no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. But we do know that when he returns, it will be for our benefit, for our comfort. And there are th- three things that are promised that make it so. Three things. First of all, vindication. There will be vindication for God's people. Now, vindication means that God's people will be publicly announced to be in the right. Now, there are two aspects to that vindication. Maybe there are more, but we're going to look at two of them. In the first place, we can think of all the sorrow and persecution that we've endured in this world. Now, it's true. In our particular situation, we don't find much of that. We all know that. But this is about not about you as a personal individual necessarily. This is about also all of God's people, and many of them are persecuted and have been persecuted in the past. The vindication promised is not just about us as individuals, but also about us as God's people as a whole, all of God's people, from the beginning of the world to its end. All those who have endured distress and persecution for the sake of the gospel will be publicly vindicated on the last day. And we see that vindication illustrated in Revelation 18. In that passage, we read about Babylon and her destruction. Babylon stands for all that is opposed to Christ. She's brought to ruin. And then in verse 20, we read, Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. It's Revelation 18.20. When Christ returns, the whole world, everyone who has ever lived, head for head, will see that the Christian cause was good, right, and noble. Everyone whoever persecuted believers, from Nero to Hitler to Stalin to Mao Zedong to Kim Jong-il and, and everyone in between, will be shown to have been wrong. They will be shown to have been opposing the king of the universe. The truth will come out in public. And we will rejoice. That's the first aspect of this future vindication. The second aspect of vindication is with regard to the lives of God's people. We read in Revelation 20, 
that books will be opened. And everything that has ever been said or done or thought will be publicly exposed. That includes everything that has ever been said, thought, and done by you and me, by believers. It will all be laid open. Now, if you're like me, you might hear that at first and and, and wish that it wasn't so. And say, please tell us some good news. There's got to be something good in this. Well, first of all, God's Word says it's going to happen. And for unbelievers, this will result in their final judgment. They will have reason for fear. If any of us here this afternoon are not fully trusting Christ, hear this warning and repent and believe. But for us who do believe, this opening of the books is nothing to be afraid of. It's not going to result in humiliation. Maybe we fear that. It's not going to result in condemnation. Hopefully we fear that more. Because when the books are open and your thoughts, words, and deeds are laid bare for all to see, you can say, yeah, I did it. I did all of that. It's true. And I don't deny any of it. But I have a Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. He has paid for all my sins and wickedness with His broken body and His shed blood. His perfect obedience is mine. Because of Christ, you will be vindicated. Though many of those present at that day will have seen your evil deeds and and mocked you, though they mocked the Gospel and they said things like, ah, look at those Christians. They said they will know we are Christians by our love. Well, we didn't see a lot of love from those people. Those Christians are no better than us. Christ will vindicate you. It will be made known to all people who have ever lived that despite your sins and wickedness, despite all the inconsistencies of your life, and all the inconsistencies of our life as a congregation, as a church. We have a Savior. We're right with God because of Christ. And you know what will happen because of that? Praise. All of God's people who've ever lived. And not only God's people, but also the angels. We're going to together praise Him. We're going to make much of Him forever. Because what a Savior we have. And so the the promise of vindication gives comfort when we confess that Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead. There's another promise. We said that there are three things in which we can find comfort as we consider that Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead. The second one is that there is a promise of justice. That promise is captured by the Catechism when it says that He will cast all His and all my enemies into everlasting condemnation. 
Well, as far as Christ's enemies are concerned, the Bible is clear. No one in the entire Bible spoke more about hell. No one in the entire Bible warned more about hell and God's wrath than Jesus Christ Himself. In the verses right before what we read from Matthew 25, we hear the Lord Jesus speaking about the master of the wicked servant. This is some strong language. Speaks of the the master cutting that servant to pieces and sending him to a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a reference to hell. There will be justice. In other words, Christ's enemies will get what's coming to them, what they deserve. But what about the mention of our enemies here? Does that mean that Christ is going to destroy that kid at school or that kid on the bus who's always picking on you? Don't go there. Don't go in that direction. That's not what this means. All His and my enemies. There's no difference here between Christ and us. For the purposes of the catechism, we're one and the same. In question and answer 51, we are members of Christ. That means that we are united to Him. His enemies are our enemies. Think of Psalm 139 where David speaks the same way in verses 21 and 22. Do I not hate those who hate You, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against You? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them My enemies. David says that God's enemies are His. It's the same way here. Those who have deliberately set themselves up against Christ and His church, they will be condemned to hell. Second Thessalonians 1 speaks directly about that. Read those verses 6-10 to of Second Thessalonians 1. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power. On the day He comes to be glorified in His holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. It's a promise of justice. And it gives us comfort in a world of injustice. Recently I read a book about several modern day martyrs. The author of the book noted that in each case, the person or persons responsible for the martyrdom were never brought to justice. But someday, that will change. There will be justice. And we can take consolation in that. Revelation 18, passage I quoted a moment ago from verse 20, the Lord Jesus even says that we will rejoice in that when justice is meted out. And so to review, we've got those two things, 
promise for vindication and a promise for justice. The third thing promised is glory for all of God's people. When Christ returns and His people are vindicated, we will be taken with Him into heavenly joy and glory. That means that we're going to be living in God's presence forever on the new heavens and new earth. We have something truly wonderful to look forward to. And we'll look at the wonders of what all that involves in more detail when we get to Lord's Day 22. And so what we confess about Christ returning to judge the living and the dead, it's not meant to frighten us. It's meant to comfort us. And that comfort, that hope we have, also leads our lives in a certain direction. Think of what we read from James 5. Knowing that Christ is coming as the judge, James admonishes us, encourages us to be patient and to stand firm in the faith. Knowing that the judge is standing at the door, we're told not to to, to grumble against each other. Why not? Because grumbling and complaining about one another doesn't fit with who we are as redeemed people. It doesn't show the fruit of faith. It's not part of our identity in Christ. If the judge comes and sees people who have no part in Him, they will be condemned. So we're called to be patient and to stand firm in our faith. And then that faith will also produce the fruit of love and peace in all our relationships, also in the church. And then we also have that parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. That's such a well-known parable. and The lesson there is so plain and simple that all of us can understand this. It doesn't need much explanation. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know The day or the hour. It's loud and clear. Believe in Christ today and be ready for His coming. Come tonight, tomorrow. Could be thousands of years away. We don't know. Whatever the case may be, be ready. And even if He doesn't return, your time to meet Him could still come at any moment. Who knows? You may even be driving home from church this afternoon. I pray that it won't be so. It could happen. Are you ready? Beloved, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Look for His coming. Be ready for it. And pray for it. There's so much to say on this subject. The Bible is full of teaching about what still lays ahead. Some of it is clear. Some of it is less so. But we know at least one thing for certain. Christ will return and He will judge all men. We also know for certain that He rules right now. God's number one has the authority right now to rule. And with that same authority... He will also judge. That's for our comfort, our benefit. Let us pray.
O gracious God, merciful Father, we're so grateful that You raised Christ our Savior and made Him to sit at Your right hand. We praise You that He is the head of the church through whom You rule all things. We're thankful for the Holy Spirit and the gifts we receive through Him. We thank You for a Savior who is so rich and so generous. We rejoice in the power of our Savior by which we know ourselves to be safe. And we thank You also for the comfort of knowing that He will come again to judge the living and the dead. We pray that He would come quickly with our vindication, with justice, and with glory for all those who are Yours. We ask, we plead with You for more grace so that we would constantly fix our eyes on Christ our Lord knowing that He is on our side, that we are right with You through Him. Help us also to hear Your Word, to submit our lives to it, to regard it as authoritative for our lives each day. Oh God, give us Your mercy too, so that we also are merciful to one another, that we would not grumble against each other. Finally, oh Lord, help us. Help us each and every one, so that we would all wait with eager expectation for the return of King Jesus. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.